millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Popular History. New content every day. Cardinal Numbers, where we discuss, rate, and rank the Cardinals of the Catholic Church. Habemus Pointsum, when it's time to talk about papal elections. Project Veritas, an administrative history of the Catholic Church. The Solemn High Pod, where we look at history through Pope colored glasses. Subscribe to Popular History wherever you get your pods. Hello all. Real quick on the intros and everything this time, uh, thanks everyone who's been donating to Patreon, the PayPal, the GoFundMe. As usual, Thanks all so much for donating. If you haven't been able to donate, that's fine. Please share the link to the GoFundMe. That's really been helping. And so that's huge if you can just share it and and raise attention to that. And with that, sorry, it's been a little bit of a gap. Things have been going on. Uh, All of my summer plans fell apart. So that's cool. But we have a sitter now and everything. So mm. anyhow, with that, uh, let's get started. All right, everyone, today we have several donors and patrons worthy of honor and praise. First up, we have Donor Gary, who shall be known from henceforward as Sir Gary Orphanmaker. Up next, we have Patron Garan, who shall be known as Prince Garan, hero of seven easily impressed worlds. Up next, we have Chris, who has earned the title Earl Chris, famed Brussels sprout of the nation. Ryan is next, who shall be known as Duke Ryan the Gentle, Terror of the Orphan Shoals. Up next, we've got Prashanth, who shall be known as Viscount Prashanth, Seeker After Loose Change and Ranger of the Couch Cushions. And lastly, we have someone whose name is Emo Dingo, who, I mean, I'm going to gild the lily here by going with Lord Emo Dingo the Sad. Thank you to all of our donors and patrons. We got a bunch this time, so I I did cut it in half again. So if you haven't heard from me, you you will next time. And without further ado, let's get to the episode, though I should say, content warning on the intro quote, it turns out that uh, papal politics is a fairly full contact sport. Sacra sacerdotis torquebat membra flagellis, unius in casum multorum saeva taetis, carnifices gemina traxerunt fronte fenestras, et celerim skindunt lacerato corpore linguam. They lashed the limbs of the holy priest with whips. The maws of the many raged for the ruin of one. Butchers, they drew out the windows from his symmetrical face. They cut swift tongue from mutilated body. Quote from The Epic of Paderborn Translated and read by Greg from Popular History 
Yes, you heard right. Translated and read by Greg. Dude's a double threat. to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 90, Making a Papal States. In this series of episodes, we are doing a bit of a detailed look at the city of Rome and the papacy, with the goal of establishing the chronology of events and motivations leading up to the rule of Gregory VII. In doing so, we have looked at the geography, economy, and political organization of Rome, the city. Notably, Rome had a kind of hybrid government in which a clerical hierarchy administered the goods and services necessary for day-to-day life, such as the provision of food and the distribution of funds, while a military aristocracy ran the security and justice apparatuses of the city. Ironically, for a city run by a military aristocracy, the militia-based military of Rome was remarkably useless essentially only being useful for holding ground, acting as enforcers for the aristocratic families of the city, and, relatedly, beating up civilians. Atop these two conjoint hierarchies was the Pope, who owned the city in a very literal real estate sense, and used the wealth provided by the landowning in and around the city, as well as money coming in from pilgrimages, to ensure an ample flow of patronage that kept the clergy and the aristocracy alike more or less on side. Such is the theory. This all leads to two final and very conjoined questions. How does one become Pope? And how did the Pope end up ruling a good portion of central Italy, despite having a military that we can most charitably describe as probably existing? While it might seem that the internal politics of the leadership contest of Rome is a distinct issue from the story of Rome's international relations with its neighbors, that is a product of our modern biases as to how we expect modern nation-states to work. We tend to think domestic and international politics are in different realms, but that was not the case for polities in the Middle Ages, as we shall see. Now, you may be asking yourself, I know how popes are elected. There's the College of Cardinals, the smoke, the thing with the seat with a hole in it. Well, however much of that is true today, it was not always the case. The structure of papal elections has, like any other institution, a beginning and evolution process, and has been subject to periodic changes right down to the 1990s. As with any process that selects a government, these changes impact the final results because they determine who is considered eligible for selection, who can participate in selection, and how the process is judged to be legitimate. As with the selection of Germanic Roman emperors, where something as straightforward as inheriting the empire was actually a fairly delicate process, a papal election in the year 1000 was hardly a simple act of following a set of written rules. To understand the papacy in our era, we need to understand the rules that existed, how they came to be, and how they impacted the policies of the papacy. In so doing this, today I'm going to be covering a lot of names and dates. As usual, please don't worry about remembering the specifics. I'm giving you the semi-detailed run-through so you can get the flavor of how the rules regarding papal election happened, how they evolved, and the different parties that impacted this evolution. But you don't really need to worry about, like, 676 or whatever. Just sit back Absorb the vibes, man, and I will summarize periodically to give you the important parts. One last note before I get started. I have a new source. While Noble and Wickham were great at providing the background of how Rome worked as a society, they both kind of danced around the specifics of how papal elections work. 
It was clear from their work, however, that papal elections worked differently at that time, and that it was actively evolving in the period we were studying. So it was that I tracked down Behind Locked Doors, a history of the papal elections by F. Baumgartner. To paraphrase the introduction, Baumgartner set out to describe the history of papal elections for a general audience without hagiography or scandal-mongering. I'm grateful he did. His book is an easy and fun read, and it does what it says on the tin. It gave me the history of the institution of papal elections up to the point I wanted it. Uh, Actually, the book keeps going through to modern elections, which means that I was able to get what I wanted out of, you know, the introduction and the first chapter. So, thumbs up for a relatively easy research process. If you're interested in the topic, look it up. It's a fun book, so worth reading. There are probably more detailed works out there, and there are definitely more detailed discussions of individual elections, but this is a great place to start, and that's probably why huge passages of the book seem to have been copied verbatim into Wikipedia, so if you want to get it for free, go to Wikipedia. Obviously, it's heavily edited, but the Wikipedia section on uh, papal elections pretty much just copied from Baumgartner. Which is not why I used Baumgartner, I did research like a good boy. But that was interesting find. Which is to say, if you look at the Wikipedia page on papal elections and you like what you see, go get yourself a copy of Baumgartner. Pretty much the same thing. And once again, many thanks to Bree from Pontifax for hooking me up with a copy of the book. Now then, our story today begins during the Roman Empire. Drink. But actually we need to go right back to the beginning here. I've discussed in earlier episodes that while bishops are not mentioned in the Christian Bible per se, the reality of local leadership does play a role in the epistles, and the concept that there should be processes for the selection of people in various roles is discussed, albeit in the selection of deacons. So, while the role of bishop may not be entirely fundamental to Christianity in a biblical sense, it was probably in the process of emerging during the century of the Bible's composition, and is, as such, deeply fundamental to the way Christianity came to coalesce in the immediate post-apostolic period, which is to say, in the years after everyone who knew Jesus died, the role of bishop was rapidly emerging. One might think that the process for defining a role so fundamental to the religion would have ample documentation in the writings of the early church fathers, but unfortunately our sources for this period are in general more on the side of the legendary than the historical. The first pope was, of course, St. Peter, who was theoretically selected by the Lord God himself in a very literal sense, and according to works like the Liber Pontificalis, the next few were personally picked by St. Peter, either directly or later on due to the fact that he had consecrated them himself and they were still alive. So that gave them a leg up. The third of these, Pope Clement, is notable for producing a historically verifiable letter that discusses the organization of church congregations and gives us some of the key bits of evidence as to how this whole process happened. At this point, the words bishop and presbyter were being used interchangeably, indicating a church leader ranking above a deacon, and not necessarily the formal monolithic position we think of now. Clement also forcefully argued that such individuals should leave their local church communities essentially unchallenged, because they had the benefit of apostolic succession, which is to say that they have a legitimate claim to a line of succession that goes back to an actual apostle. As Clement himself was supposedly ordained as a priest by St. Peter, this gives strong evidence that the process of bishops becoming local leaders that was justified by the idea of apostolic succession happened very early indeed. Podcast footnote. I should say that, of course, you are welcome to accept or question the accuracy of a variety of aspects of this whole story. 
I've alluded in previous episodes that we don't really know all that much about whether Peter or Paul were in Rome from the documents during their lifetimes. And it certainly would benefit Clement to say St. Peter was there while he is arguing for the primacy of people in his own position. Personally, I do think the evidence we have hangs together fairly reasonably that there was a Peter, that he was in Rome, that he ordained Clement, and that Clement thought that this was an important thing, and that he managed to persuade other Christians of this importance. More important than what I think, the people in the Middle Ages thought so, as Clement's writings are one of the first of those documents that came to form the writings of the Church Fathers that bridge the gap between the scripture of the Christian Bible and the way it was interpreted and acted upon by basically all modern Christian sects. End podcast footnote. It does not help our investigation that Christianity at this time was still sort of an insurgent Eastern cult, subject to periodic repression of varying levels of severity. Oddly enough, however, it is the first major persecution under Decius that gives us our best evidence of how elections were being conducted in Rome in these early days. During this persecution, Christians were forced to decide between escalating levels of violence or sacrificing some incense to Jupiter. They were told that upon sacrificing, they could walk free, though they would actually also probably be forced to turn in other Christians or hordes of Christian documents and things like that. As in all persecutions, some people were able to hide successfully, some people caved, and some people were martyred. After the persecution ended, however, the question arose in the Christian communities as to what to do with those who had caved. One faction argued for complete expulsion, with those guilty having to be rebaptized to be readmitted to the church, and any baptisms performed by those guilty would also have to be redone by a legitimate priest. And just as a side note, what this would sort of mean is that everyone who had to be rebaptized but had died in the interim, well, you know where they're going. Now, the other faction argued that rebaptism was not allowed, and the people who had caved should simply be readmitted with some sort of locally assigned penance, depending on the nature of their crime. Those baptized by priests who had caved were fine, especially the little babies who had subsequently died, you monsters. It's about the office, not the qualities of the man holding it, and little babies shouldn't be punished eternally because one man was weak in the face of Roman persecution. For the record, this latter group won out, and it became settled doctrine that rebaptism was never to be required, ever, under any circumstances. Keep this in mind for later episodes, when this norm will be flagrantly violated. In any case, this debate split Christian communities across the empire, including in Rome. We know this from a letter from the Bishop of Carthage, who had been asked to mediate the electoral impasse between the parties. This is interesting in and of itself, as we see that the hierarchy of seniority, which would put Rome at the top in later centuries, was still evolving. In any case, the Cyprian of Carthage wrote that his choice for winner of the election was the better candidate because he had advanced through the clerical offices one at a time, he had not campaigned for office, and because he had been selected by the majority of the clergy, by votes from the assembled laity, and by an assembly of bishops from neighboring dioceses. He had also been ordained by 16 of those bishops, while his rival only had the support of three. This letter is the most important explanation of how bishops were supposed to be elected until the rise of Constantine and the conversion of the empire. To state it simply, the election was supposed to involve an actual vote taken amongst the whole clergy of the diocese, the assembled laity, and under the observation of neighboring bishops. The position was one of spiritual leadership and should not be the result of ambition, and therefore campaigning was frowned upon. And obviously, the person selected should be a high-level cleric and not some rando off the street. Unfortunately, this is as detailed as things get for a few centuries, and this letter was not exactly a legal document. 
quote-unquote, all the clergy, is probably the least contentious part, though certainly where you draw the line between a cleric and a layperson could be better defined in general. Similarly, the presence and input from the local bishops is probably relatively straightforward. Do you share a border with them? They're a neighboring bishop. You probably bring them along. And of course, there's room for interpretation there. The quote-unquote assembled laity has the most room for interpretation and abuse. Who is the laity? Is it just everyone? Are you supposed to get every single person in Rome together? How does this work? To be fair, in all cases, there's a lot of things that are missing that we would look for in a modern definition of how an election is supposed to work. There's no determination of what a quorum would be, for example. Who is supposed to assemble the groups described? How do they vote? Etc. Etc. In legal proceedings, these details can be the guardrails between a clean process and total fraud. But then, Cyprian was not writing a constitution, or an order of behavior, or anything like that. He was just writing a letter, explaining his decision. So, this letter from Cyprian presents roughly how we think elections of bishops went in the 3rd century. But then, everything changed when Constantine became emperor. Now, Constantine didn't forcefully convert the empire to Christianity. It was still a minority religion, but it was clear that Christianity had most favored religion status. Ambitious men who wanted to ingratiate themselves to the emperor would convert, and important clerics were welcomed into the emperor's inner circle. Most importantly for Rome, Constantine gave the church loads of resources, and the Roman bishops became administrators as much as spiritual figures. Christians around the empire immediately became very loyal to the new emperor, and he used this to secure his rule in places like Rome, which was maybe a little wary of him, but had this inherently loyal group pinning them down in the city. A flip side of this is that the church was now an unofficial apparatus of the Roman state. Constantine's legitimacy partly came from his treatment of the Christians, and so it was important for political reasons that the church be friendly and orderly. As such, the emperor had a vested interest in the elections of church leaders, which is to say, bishops, and in particular, important bishops like the one in Rome. There was never a statement in canon law that the emperor's opinions about these elections mattered and should be taken into consideration, but the fact was that they did, due to good feelings from the donations and also because the emperor controlled the pointy things. So it was that when Constantine suggested Julius I be pope, he was made pope. Constantine would have a big hand in setting the direction of the newly universal Roman church, but there were forces outside his control. The human tendency towards infighting after success, what Mike Duncan calls the entropy of victory, was majorly at play here. Now that Christianity was the favored religion and was not being persecuted, what was it that the Christians believed exactly? A major controversy erupted around the so-called Arian heresy, which I'm not going into, but suffice it to say that it wasn't about those Arians, but it was just a guy named Arius who had some thoughts about some things. Constantine liked a bit of what Arius had to say, but was much more interested in having the church be unified and an effective tool for unifying his empire, so he set the precedent of calling a council of bishops to resolve a tricky situation. The subsequent Council of Nicaea set a number of church rules and statements of belief that underpin most sects of Christianity to this day. Interestingly, Pope Julius, who was appointed by Constantine, was a staunchly anti-Arian bishop in this council and made a major contribution to the defeat of Arianism, which indicates that his selection wasn't any kind of corrupt or venal choice on the part of Constantine. He picked someone that he thought was good for the job. Podcast footnote. Just to mention it, it was under Pope Mark, Julius's predecessor, that the Bishop of Ostia was given pride of place in the consecration of Pope. The Bishop of Ostia is the president of the College of Cardinals to this day. 
End podcast footnote. After Constantine's death, his sons took over, which has subsequently been viewed as an unfortunate mistake by most. Notably, Emperor Constantinus was famous for more than his fair share of relative murder and such pleasant things. In terms of the church, he was a staunch Arian, and set a major precedent by exiling the anti-Arian Pope Liberius. As such, the precedent at this time was that the emperor could dispose of popes as he saw fit, at least if he was a bloodthirsty psychopath. I mean, who was going to tell him no? Ultimately, Liberius caved and was allowed to resume his role as pope, in the process displacing an anti-pope who had been appointed by the emperor in the interim. This created an ideological split in the papacy, and when both men died very close to each other, their supporters, rather than coming back together and electing a new pope, they elected separate new popes, Damasus and Ursinus in this case, whose followers then attacked each other physically. In one's incident, 137 of Ursinus's followers were killed, with the survivors fleeing to Emperor Valentinian for support. Instead, Valentinian chose to support the Damasus faction, who had more numerous followers, thus them winning that particular massacre. This became an ongoing problem, as several papal elections followed on similar lines with a legitimist pope and a pope elected by an oppositional movement turning to the emperors for arbitration. At this point, both the emperors and the Romans were both pretty uncomfortable about this, but they didn't really see another way to solve the problem with the rules as they were, so the emperors usually chose whomever had more support in Rome. Fortunately or unfortunately, this process was complicated somewhat by the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and Pope Simplicius in 483 established, or attempted to establish a precedent by decreeing the method of the next election. In this case, he decreed that arbitration would be done by a prominent Roman religious figure and not by the new Germanic king of Italy. This precedent lasted all of one election, which was actually the main precedent. When rules are established by decree, succession settlements are only one decree away from being overturned. In any case, the next time there was a dispute, it was, in fact, the local Germanic king who was asked to arbitrate. This arbitration resulted in the appointment of Pope Symmachus in 498, who nonetheless faced a persistent opposition from the followers of the other candidate, Lawrence, who had a strong support in the Roman Senate. Eager to avoid this persisting, Symmachus decreed that the Pope could choose his own successor, and also attempted to ban electioneering by the laity. This contravened a decree by Pope Anastasius II, who was Symmachus's predecessor, but Anastasius was seen as a heretic, so no one seemed to mind at this point. In any case, Symmachus's decrees moved the electoral system in a direction of excluding lay power structures from primary decision-making, but then, as Symmachus should have known better than anyone, these decrees were only ever one new pope away from being overturned. Skipping ahead a few popes, John I became pope in 536. John held a pro-Eastern Roman policy, which was frowned upon by the Germanic king of Italy at the time, who was somewhat nervous about an invasion. This king had John killed, and imposed a new pope on Rome. The election in this case consisted of a complex process of stabbing, finding someone who didn't like being stabbed, and putting them on a chair. This new pope, Felix IV, understandably struggled to assert his legitimacy, and towards the end of his life summoned the Roman clergy, and not the laity, to his sickbed. He bestowed a mark of his office to a Germanic clergyman, and decreed excommunication on anyone who didn't accept this boniface as legitimate. The Senate strongly objected to the lack of an election, and resurrected Anastasius's decree as precedent, that a pope couldn't pick their successor. 
ignoring Symmachus's decree to the contrary, and a new schism was only avoided when the clergy's choice as pope died after a month. Nothing ends an argument between two people like one of them dying. Boniface, the new new pope, forced all the supporters of the clergy's candidate to acknowledge that they had been in schism before letting them resume their offices, since they had violated Anastasius's decree against appointed successors. Again, Symmachus's decree might as well have been chopped liver. Then Boniface attempted to appoint his own successor, leading inevitably to some unpleasantness with the Senate. He was forced to back down on the appointment, and the election following his death was so notoriously corrupt and violent that the Germanic king of Italy forced the new pope, John II, to come up with some sort of settlement to try and keep the peace. John ended up issuing decrees barring private agreements about who to elect as pope and limiting the amount of money that could be spent on an election. Not banning it, mind. Bribery is a Roman tradition. Call it campaign bribery reform. This, however, brings us to the cusp of the reconquest of Italy by the Eastern Romans. As I mentioned last time, the Eastern Romans arrived with much local support, but managed to squander it. One of the ways they did this included the fact that when they took Rome, Justinian ordered the Pope seized and forced him to abdicate in favor of one of his underlings, who also managed to annoy Justinian and was also violently deposed. The next Pope was seated by Justinian, and then there was a sham election as an afterthought, at which point the authorities started to notice a lot of dirty looks and grumbling from the populace. I have to assume that the appointment of the Patriarch of Constantinople just worked this way, and this was all a big cultural misunderstanding, but I, I can't imagine that it was that blunt. In any case, Justinian's representatives may have realized he was pushing too far at this point, and for the next pope, he allowed a genuine election, except that he insisted that the emperor must approve the election before the consecration of the pope. So, the pope would be elected, but before they could actually take their seat, a messenger had to go out to Constantinople <laughs> to get approval. This settlement lasted until the breakdown of Eastern Roman rule, and was really annoying the entire time. It was annoying, just to spell it out, because the territory between Rome and Constantinople was not exactly convenient to travel through at this time. This led to long interregnums as messengers were forced to traverse Italy's decaying road network and then board ships for Constantinople, often only to be left waiting as a power play by the very, very busy emperors. Eventually, after a century, this procedure was changed to approval by the Exarchs in Ravenna, which was much closer than Constantinople, and yet somehow there were still oddly long interregnums. It was an improvement. Time for one of my promised summaries. At this point, at the start of Eastern Roman rule in Italy, we have a number of precedents affecting Roman elections. As with all elections of bishops, the candidate is chosen by an election of the clergy and the assembled laity, but everything beyond that is local custom and unwritten rules. It is preferable to have a senior cleric as a candidate, but nothing is set in stone. All attempts at establishing rules have foundered on the fact that papal decrees can be reversed by the very next pope. Also, we have a clear situation where emperors are interfering with the papacy in a way that goes right back to Constantine. Emperors have picked popes, have exiled popes, and have arbitrated electoral disputes. Nonetheless, most Christians are not comfortable with this level of interference, particularly the Roman Christians. The compromise position at this point is that the popes are elected locally, but the emperor has to approve them before they can be consecrated. And the emperor's troops are always there, waiting if things get too unfriendly. One last point. The idea that the Pope could pick their successor seems to have died a death, 
the idea that you would campaign or talk about who the next pope would be while the pope was still alive was just generally frowned upon at this point. But again, it's not really set in stone. There's tons of contradictory precedent in both directions. So a lot is still up in the air, but that's sort of the direction things are trending. All right, let's continue. Around the time of the arrival of the Eastern Romans, we stop hearing about the old Senate. But around the 680s, the time the popes were allowed to notify Ravenna instead of Constantinople, so a century or so later, we start hearing about a new force in Roman politics, the army, aka the aristocracy, which means we are catching up to the last episode. Probably these two changes are related, as the empire was forced to decentralize authority in Italy and the wealthy people of the Senate were forced to take on more practical roles. Their first major play in papal elections was in 686, when they objected to the candidate chosen by the clergy and seized the Lateran. However, this only resulted in a stalemate, as the clergy and the populace of the city wouldn't agree to the military's candidate either. The stalemate was broken when a compromise candidate was put forward, a man named Conan. What followed is an era that is somewhat subject to a person's point of view. Baumgarter, following a somewhat traditional point of view, sees this as an era when the aristocracy, acting as a unified force and holding all the pointy things, dominated the papal elections for the next several decades. Candidates were elected without much fuss, but with the nobility as an active participant in elections. Therefore, the aristocrats must be enforcing their candidates on the city. Nobles' interpretation of these series of elections is rather different. By the time the aristocracy shows up in 686, a very new geopolitical situation had emerged. The Lombards had invaded Italy in the 500s. North and west of Roman-controlled regions, they had taken most of northern Italy, including two-thirds of the Po Valley and the majority of Tuscany. In addition to this, they had also taken the duchies of Benevento and Spoleto to the east and south of Roman-controlled territory. When combined with Eastern Roman entanglements in the Levant and the attendant lack of resources going to Italy, this situation explained the rise of the military aristocrats. But the Lombards were not the monolithic kingdom of Arian heretics portrayed in traditional narratives. By the 680s, they had largely converted to Catholicism, and the centralized authority of the kings was, let's say, open to interpretation. The Lombard kings had a decent-ish level of control to the north, though it was hardly dictatorial, as they ruled over a multicultural people living in a mountainous country with a semi-feudal power structure. Though that's a little bit anachronistic, but let's just go with that. That said, they were cut off from the duchies of Benevento and Spoleto by a corridor of Roman land, and thus these duchies were notoriously independence-minded. The long-standing political goals of the Lombard kings were to politically unify their kingdom by playing nice with the church, and physically unify the kingdom by taking control of the land separating them from the southern duchies. Unfortunately, this latter policy required taking Roman land, which makes this all something of a paradox. How do you politically win over your populace by making nice to the Pope while also conquering a Roman-controlled corridor of land that the Pope claimed as his? When you factor in the usual slew of succession issues in post-antique Germanic kingdoms, the Lombards were threatening, but were fractious and unstable. Their kings wanted Roman land, but were also extremely eager to have the approval of the popes. So there was a lot of room for maneuver here. So the Lombards indeed represented a threat, but from the papal standpoint, it wasn't the Lombards that kept sending armies into Rome to drag popes into exile over minor doctrinal disputes. By this time, the papacy had reached an inflection point with the Eastern Roman Empire. They saw them as the legitimate successors of the empire, 
and the empire was the height of legitimacy, something which mattered very much to a morality-focused organization like the church. On the other hand, they were not sending Italy any resources, or when they did, it was only to present an existential threat to the lives of the popes. Many of these popes were also individuals who had themselves, or had family members who, had fled to Rome to escape religious tensions in the Eastern Roman Empire. To make this situation extra spicy, Eastern Roman power was most strongly preserved in the Exarchate of Ravenna, but the people of Ravenna looked to the Pope for religious leadership due to ties of language and tradition. Lastly, just to put all the pieces on the board here before I sort of say what all this means, a theoretically much larger Germanic kingdom lay to the north of the Alps in the shape of the Merovingian Frankish kingdom. Though they were in the midst of a bloody and chaotic civil war, they had already on several occasions raided deep into Lombard territory, seemingly immune to the presence of the Alps, like they had some sort of buff in Civ VI. So the traditional story of what the papacy was dealing with in the 680s is that they were in a situation where the Lombards were at the gates and wanted Roman territory, so the popes looked to the Eastern Romans to hold them at bay, thus forcing them to accept Eastern Roman interference. In reality, more and more of the security of Roman territory was under the control of local militias, which may not have been the best force militarily, but the Lombards at this time were beset by internal divisions and wanted papal support. This is all important context to what happened after Conan died in 687. Once again, the clergy and the military aristocracy had different candidates in mind, uh, namely, just so you know, one Theodore and one Pascal, and the two sides seized the Lateran and St. Peter's on opposite sides of the city and glared at each other across the chasm. There was some violence, and in the chaos, Pascal wrote to the Exarch of Ravenna, offering a rather large bribe in return for putting Pascal on the throne. But while that message was on its way, cooler heads prevailed. The major leaders of both the clergy and the military met together in the Palatine Palace, which was essentially on neutral ground between the Lateran and St. Peter's, and they discussed the situation. It is said in the original sources that Theodore's supporters were more numerous, but in the end, the leaders of the city chose a compromise candidate, Sergius, to be the new pope. And when the leadership of both the military and the clergy were combined, Sergius's support was strongest of all. This was presented as a fait accompli to the two candidates, who both stepped down. Then, sometime later, the Exarch of Ravenna rocked up outside the city gates, announcing to the city that he was there to arbitrate the dispute as the emperor's representative. The city leaders said they didn't need an arbitration, they already had one, and both candidates had already agreed. The exarch considered this, and then said, okay, but he was promised a bribe and he needed it to pay his soldiers. He was refused his bribe, so he pillaged the suburbs of the city and went home. According to Noble, this was something of a turning point in the political organization of Rome for the next few decades, and I find his narrative compelling. The leaders of the city, who had a ton of grievances against the Eastern Roman Empire, suddenly got a stark example of the results of unity and factionalism. If they had continued their factional squabbling, the Exarch would have installed yet another pope over someone's objections, by force, and then extracted that huge bribe. By compromising, the two sides got something basically acceptable, had humiliated the Exarch, and kept the city safe. The fact that the Exarch then showed how friendly he was to Rome by pillaging the suburbs was icing on the cake. In traditional narratives of the century that followed, like I said, the papacy remained under Eastern Roman control, because the popes were all ethnically Greek, and were also getting interference from the aristocracy. But Noble points out that the Roman clergy was simply very Greek at this time due to refugees from the various invasions, as well as the Arian and Monothelitian disagreements in the East. Such individuals were not necessarily friendly to the emperors, and indeed were probably somewhat independently minded, if not outright hostile. 
and attempts by Ravenna to influence papal politics had definitely reached a point of diminishing returns. On the other hand, none of these Greek clergy members were aristocrats, so any benefits the aristocrats might have received from these men would have been in terms of policies that were also acceptable to the clergy. In other words, if the aristocrats were the ones putting these people on the throne, it, it wasn't for my family or for your family to get ahead. It was some sort of set of policies that we can all actually agree on. As Noble suggests, it seems much more likely that the clergy and aristocrats had simply formed an unofficial anti-Eastern Roman alliance than that Ravenna and the aristocrats were somehow imposing pro-aristocratic Greek clergy on the papacy that turned around and focused all their attention on foiling the plans of the emperors? In any way, that's Noble's take, and I agree with it, that there was an internal political alliance going on, and that the older narrative of Greek and aristocratic interference in elections is probably actually not true. So, given that whole situation, the popes began steering a more and more independent foreign policy. We don't have time for every twist and turn, but suffice it to say that the Roman political consensus personified in the pope spent the next decades playing all their opponents off against each other in a very long game. The Lombards were weakened by alternating alliances with the Lombard kings and then with the dukes of Benevento and Spoleto. When the Lombards got mad and attacked, the popes would use a mix of religious incredulity and assistance from the Eastern Romans to force them back, and when the Roman emperors attempted to intervene against the popes, the popes would bring in support from the Lombards as well as their popular support amongst the populace in both Ravenna and Rome. A series of conflicts arose in which the exarchs attempted to physically capture the pope only to be turned back by uprisings within his own military. These attempts to insert imperial control became more and more elaborate and laughable until eventually the empire just gave up on controlling Rome. At this point, Rome was effectively independent. This did leave the popes with a problem. How to counterbalance the Lombards. They tried for a while to play off the kings against the dukes of Benevento and Spoleto, but ultimately, all parties to this conflict were too close for comfort and too eager to take Roman land. If the Pope made an alliance with the Dukes, that would distract the King of the Lombards, but meanwhile, the Dukes would start taking some of Rome's castles. And if he went back to the King for redress, then the King would start taking some castles. As such, the papacy now famously turned to the Franks, whose emerging Carolingian dynasty had just seen off the Umayyad invasion of Aquitaine. Diplomatic correspondence had been going on for some time, and a correspondence which had already given the Pepinid Franks the political cover they needed to take over the Frankish kingship and depose the Merovingians, thus becoming the Carolingians in the process. If this seems really convoluted, there's other podcasts out there. I mean, I, uh, have I not covered it? I, I forget if I've covered it or not, but there's other podcasts out there that do. Check out The History of France or uh, Battle Royale. Those are, those are both good. In any case, the point is that the Franks had already been on friendly terms with the popes. They had already gotten some political cover from them. So at this point, the Carolingian Franks were a logical outside party to turn to for support in terms of the papacy. In 754, this deal was somewhat sealed by Stephen II, who personally traveled to Paris to see King Pepin the Short. Uh, incidentally, this process of traveling through Lombard territory to get to the Frankish king was something of a tour de force of diplomatic bluff. He went to the, the Lombard king's court saying, oh, we're here to negotiate in good faith. We're, we can solve all of our problems. He was there for three days and then just legged it. <laughs> in any case, from Pavia, legging it over the Alps before the Lombard king even knew he was gone, 
Stephen II traveled to Paris to see King Pepin the Short, who subsequently invaded Italy, beat the Lombards, and forced them to accept the papal borders. As Thomas Noble says, the Republic of St. Peter now was not only de facto independent, it had international character and was recognized as its own entity by their neighbors. And, as soon as the Franks left, the popes immediately changed tack to begin establishing close and friendly relations with the Lombard kings, which did last over the next couple decades. For the next generation, this was sort of the status quo in central Italy. Now, this does not mean that papal elections remained quiet. On the contrary, the entropy of victory set in once again. With the Eastern Romans in memory and the Lombards licking their wounds, fighting broke out between the aristocracy and the clerics. It started in 767, when Pope Paul died. Many felt Paul had ignored the needs of the Roman aristocracy, the poor lambs. Given the opportunity, an armed force was gathered to seize the Lateran, this time by a nobleman named Toto. Insert musical joke here. He had his brother, Constantine, proclaimed Pope, despite Constantine being a layman. Three bishops were forced at Pointything Point to promote Constantine up the ranks into the papacy. Meanwhile, in the streets, fighting broke out. Messengers were sent to the Lombards by the head of the city notaries, one Christophorus, to request aid against what was effectively a coup in progress. In the fighting, the Lombards helped Christophorus's faction, and Toto was killed. Constantine was tortured and imprisoned. A bloody purge followed. During the chaos, the Lombards sought to impose their own candidate as pope with the assistance of an important cleric, Waldepert, but Christophorus outmaneuvered them, had Waldepert arrested, and blinded, and sent a polite note to the Lombards asking them to leave, please. They did, eventually. Christophorus emerges as one of those fascinating characters about which a historian can only wish for more information that does not exist. Apparently a terrifyingly adept and powerful individual, he was also a consummate technocrat. Once the eyeballs had stopped flowing into the sewers, Christophorus set his plan into motion. His devious, evil plan. He held a legitimate election. That was free and fair, as far as all of our sources say. Pope Stephen III was elected, and then under Christophorus's strong guiding hand, a council was called. The council set down, for the first time, some semblance of a description of how future papal elections were to be run. Because it was a council making the statement, there was wider buy-in, and it was hopefully going to be harder for the subsequent popes to simply ignore these rules outright. That was the theory, anyway. In any case, the Synod of 769 started off with the important tasks that needed to be done first. Namely, Constantine was dragged out of his cell, blinded, his tongue was ripped out, and then he was dumped back into his cell at the monastery. I'm not sure who this lesson was for, but I'm sure they learned it. In any case, the more long-lasting resolutions are as follows. All clergy in Rome had a right to elect the Pope. This was later interpreted to mean all the clerical positions as they existed at the time. As we touched on last episode, new clerical positions would be created in the future, but would not get the vote. But in any case, that was the body of elective clergy, the clergy as they existed at the time. While all the clergy could vote, only cardinal bishops could be chosen. This was an interesting decision, particularly because no legal document up to this point had mentioned cardinals before, which isn't how I would write legislation, but then I'm not the kind of person who rips people's tongues out, so clearly I'm not competent to comment either way. A number of cardinal bishops who had backed Toto were also excluded from the running, thus complicating the entire situation. Finally, once the candidate had been selected by the clergy, the candidate would be presented to the laity, who would be allowed to acclaim him as pope. 
Similar to the role of acclamation in the election of Northern European kings, this step was simultaneously highly choreographed and symbolic, but also, at least theoretically, deeply important to the legitimacy of the Pope-elect. Nonetheless, this represented a major demotion in terms of lay participation in elections. And of course, by the laity, I mean the aristocracy, a group of people known for holding pointy things and being very rich. So, watch this space. Regardless, they had been excluded for now, and so Stephen went back to ruling following the suggestions and advice of Christophorus. We are told that Christophorus followed a very anti-Lombard policy, but what follows could just as likely be the result of the fact that Christophorus had summoned the Lombards to help oust Toto only to send them packing? There's a whole bunch of reasons to doubt this story, but it is really fun, so I'm going to include it, despite that it has very little to do with papal elections. The king of the Lombards, Desiderius, supposedly started by bribing members of the Pope's council to spread rumors about Christophorus. Then the Lombards marched on Rome, claiming to be on their way to a pilgrimage. The Pope barred the gates, as you would, but Desiderius asked to speak to the Pope about the matter. When the Pope left the palace, the nobles, under the pay of the Lombards, hurried around and stirred up a riot against Christophorus, which was comically smushed by the mob at Christophorus's disposal because, of course it was, he's the guy who's running the city right now. So when the Pope returned to the Lateran, he found the anti-Christophorus conspirators fleeing to him for sanctuary from that mean old Christophorus. Christophorus, being somewhat understandably concerned that there was a conspiracy against him because there was a conspiracy against him, attempted to force the Pope to promise not to turn Christophorus over to the Lombards. The Pope got angry, said that was ridiculous, berated Christophorus for being mean, and demanded that he and his men withdraw. At which point Christophorus, the brutal leader of a mob of angry people with sharp pointy things, withdrew. Uh, yeah, he just went home. Pope Stephen at this point said to himself, turned him over to the Lombards, what a great idea, and fled to the Lombard camp, because there is nothing really more threatening than a technocrat with a huge mob who meekly submits to legitimate authority. <laughs> Tense negotiations followed in which Stephen told Christophorus that he just needed to retire to a farm upstate, while publicly telling people in Rome to kill him. The sources say that Christophorus got a bit paranoid, though again, the dude was obviously being lied to by his boss, whom he was obviously ideologically devoted to, so I don't know that paranoid is the right term here. Anyway, his increased agitation and stressed-out behavior drove away his supporters until eventually he was captured and turned over to the Lombards, whereupon the Lombards' Roman partisans blinded him and his son. Stephen now discovered a major flaw in his plan. Without Christophorus, he had no organized military support, and there was an army of Lombards outside the gates of the city. Of course, the papacy was not without friends, but they were kind of a long way away. And so Desiderius, who was not a fool, sat Stephen down and forced him to write a letter to the new king of the Franks, Charles, that actually, this was all normal, just a minor reactor malfunction. De Desiderius is my friend, and you definitely don't need to invade Lombardy. Everything's fine here, now. How are you? This apparently worked. Meanwhile, Desiderius cackled. Uh, took over a bunch more papal castles and the like, while presumably twirling his mustache and flying around in his zeppelin. Which is to say that this story is almost certainly, uh, let's say, highly exaggerated, and be nice about it. That Christophorus 
fell as a result of Lombard intervention in a way that left Pope Stephen at the mercy of the Lombards is not hard to accept. That's the basic gist of this story. There was some sort of internal confusion. Christophorus, who was a very strong leader in Rome, was killed due to Lombard intervention, and that left Stephen in a bad place. As for how Christophorus fell, there's no reason to think that such a convoluted plot was necessary or even possible as a way to turn people against him. He's a notary who had led a purge of clerical and aristocratic enemies, which probably left a lot of people annoyed. (laughs) Probably he just made a bunch of enemies on the way who took him out. One of those enemies was Desiderius, so those enemies probably got support from the Lombards. But the idea that there needed to be this huge plot with all sorts of bribery and everything just seems a little bit convoluted. A final important thing to say here is that the portrayal of Desiderius as the prime mover and shaker here, as a cackling fiendish tyrant, is in line with the needs of the clerical authors of the time in which these stories were written down. Which is to say, these stories were written down in the educated court of Charlemagne, who ultimately deposed Desiderius, and so this story serves the ideological goals of the Carolingian dynasty, in that it portrays Desiderius badly, while also showing the popes as honorable, somewhat simple clerics who just needed a strong friend to back them up. In any case, Desiderius now kind of ran the city for a little while, but he left in place the reforms of Stephen III, and the subsequent election was extremely amicable. The clerical and aristocratic parties found a compromise candidate in Hadrian I, an aristocrat, but one who had spent his career moving through the clerical administration, so he wasn't just some schmo. He began promoting aristocrats into the clergy, but didn't really rock the boat otherwise. He didn't change many policies or anything. He ruled for more than 20 years, during which his major policy innovations involved cozying up more to this new King Charles guy by dating documents from the start of Charles' reign rather than from the current reign of the emperor in Constantinople. I'm sure Charlemagne was touched. In fact, I I know he was, because when Desiderius invaded the Pope's territory again in 773, Charlemagne cut short his favorite pastime, namely killing Saxons, to rush down into Italy and destroy the Lombard kingdom. The Franks thus absorbed the Lombard territory and became the Pope's BFFs forever. I I recognize. Anyway. Hadrian's successor would not have as uneventful a reign. The election was extremely fast, possibly to avoid Frankish interference, but the new Pope Leo was a commoner, and the aristocracy kind of had a sad about this. Things got more and more out of hand until 799, at which point an aristocratic mob attacked Leo and attempted to cut out his tongue. Depending on your uh, biases here, they either somehow missed, maybe they did do damage, uh, but it healed, or if you believe the sources, they actually cut out his tongue and God did a miracle at it and everything was fine. In any case, deciding not to rely too much on miracles, Leo fled to Charlemagne, who once again stormed into Italy to rescue his best buddy. Peace was restored, and Leo III was put back on the throne. Presumably not incidentally, Leo III crowned Charlemagne as Emperor of the Romans. Now everyone in the Roman aristocracy knew that Charlemagne, the most terrifying barbarian currently in operation, was Leo's buddy, and only one angry letter away. As this situation also involved Charlemagne sending a whole lot of money and new lands flowing into the papal coffers, money and new lands that then in turn fed the patronage machine of the city, it makes sense that the aristocrats were relatively quiet during the rest of Leo's papacy, and indeed the next one. Partly as a result of this situation, the aristocratic party in Rome came to be seen as anti-Frankish and the clergy as pro-Frankish. However, they were seen that way basically for their own reasons. 
The following pope, Pope Pascal, was another non-noble, and again had an uncontroversial election via the clergy. By this time, however, the resentments of the nobility had started to boil and bubble over. Apparently a number were sent into exile, inevitably going to the Frankish court, where they made connections and tried to win over the emperor. Of course, the emperor was now Louis the Pious, uh, as Charlemagne had died, and given the name, Louis the Pious, we can expect Louis to generally take the pope's side. However, the nobles were at this time able to persuade one Abbot Walla, an important spiritual advisor to both Charlemagne and his grandson, and something of a character, if you'll remember back in season two. When Pascal died, the clergy elected one Zizinius, using the accepted electoral method, but the nobles gathered together and elected Eugene II, and somehow got him consecrated. This was a big mess, and Louis the Pious stormed down to sort things out. After hearing both sides, and with the advice of his own nobles, the returning exiles, Louis the Pious found in favor of Eugenius. This may have also been a savvy political move to reconcile with the anti-imperial party while also winning important concessions. Realizing the legalities here were maybe a bit dubious, and having a number of outstanding issues to resolve in terms of Rome's relationship to the empire and stuff, at this time a new Constitutio Romano was promulgated by the joint papal and imperial courts. Podcast footnote. The difference between Frankish and Roman public governance is in evidence with this event. It's subtle, though, so I just want to point it out. The previous electoral rules were established by the convocation of a papal synod in 769. This was a formal council in which people from the region got formal invitations to an event being held at a specific place and time in which the notes were taken as to the events taking place, the composition of the debate, and the results. At the end, a formal document was made available in the form of official legislation that was agreed to by all the invited bishops on a consensus basis. Frankish courts had no formal invitation procedure. People in general came and went, which was part of what made the event public. Anyone with a sufficient social standing could peep in on events, just show up. But it wasn't a formal representative affair. The gathering of a sufficient number of important people was all that was needed to establish the legitimacy of the conversation. There were court scribes present, though it doesn't seem like they took formal minutes per se, merely taking notes for themselves and then compiling a document summarizing the decisions that had been made by the court for ratification. One could argue that the Constitutio Romana was not legally binding on the popes, since it was not established by accepted papal institutions. However, that would be a silly thing to say to the men with pointy things. Also, arguably, it was a foreign treaty and thus not entirely subject to internal procedures. End podcast footnote. This Roman constitution essentially reversed the Synod's decision of 769, and said anyone who could participate before that date would be eligible to vote going forward, which is to say that the laity could vote in addition to the clergy. My sources don't clarify what rules were in place as to determine who was part of the laity that was eligible to vote, and unfortunately was unable to find a copy of the original text in English, which is uh, odd, but very unfortunate. It seems, though, that as part of this process, the laity was defined as strictly meaning the nobility and not commoners. In addition, the election would not be considered valid until the Pope swore a loyalty oath to the Emperor in the presence of an imperial representative. And approval for the new Pope had to be secured from the Emperor as well. You know, a messenger would go to the Emperor, tell him what had happened, and the Emperor would say, good, congratulations, new Pope. Or could potentially say, nope, I want someone else. In effect, the Frankish emperors had taken over the right of approval that had previously been exercised by the Eastern Roman emperors, and added on to that this whole oath thing. 
The Constitutio also made some changes to how justice was administered in Rome, required the appointment of an imperial and papal representative to help oversee the court system, banned all violence, theft, and property damage, made persons under the protection of the Pope or Emperor inviolate, and also banned the practice of looting the papal palace after an election. Apparently, this had become a tradition and was getting a bit expensive. All of this needs to be understood in a wider context of Frankish papal relations because it is the font of a million debates. Under Charlemagne, a process had begun of defining the relationship between the popes and the Franks, which more or less reached its most solid form under Louis the Pious. For centuries, scholars have debated whether the popes were fully independent, or if they were mere creatures of the Frankish Empire, and how much changed when. This debate has hundreds of permutations that won't be resolved here. For what it's worth, my own personal opinion, as an amateur historian without real training, is that in answer to the question of whether the Pope was independent or a creature of the Frankish Empire, yes, that is my answer. As we have seen, the papacy had very much become a fully independent political entity well before the Franks arrived in Italy. However, once Charlemagne conquered Lombardy, it was pretty obvious who was in charge. That said, Charlemagne went and bent over backwards to ensure papal independence. He did this for a mixture of reasons. In the writings of the time, they of course emphasize his pious and ideological reasons, which I think is clear were absolutely there and a major part of at least his conscious rationale. We can toss in there that he had just rammed into a region that was already somewhat chaotic and collapsed the only major power structure that was left standing in terms of the Lombard monarchy. Having the popes control a huge chunk of central Italy wouldn't have hurt Charlemagne's ability to consolidate Lombardy. From a political standpoint, the Carolingian dynasty got its legitimacy from the popes, and so they needed the popes to at least seem to be genuinely independent for their blessing to be meaningful. So, under Charlemagne, all previous holdings by the pope were confirmed, and Charlemagne refused to interfere with internal papal issues unless explicitly invited to do so by the pope. This settlement became a tad awkward when it turned out the popes were claiming things like the entire island of Sardinia and the strategically vital Istrian Isthmus, places where papal troops and authority had not once ventured. They also claimed Ravenna, something Ravenna's political elite were not thrilled about. So Charlemagne and the popes had ended up having to negotiate subsequent deals to tweak the original arrangement, but it was sort of on an ad hoc basis based on individual letters back and forth. So the settlements negotiated by Louis have been seen by many historians as an assertion of imperial power over the papacy. Noble disagrees, and given what we know about Louis, it does seem unlikely he would just rock up to the Pope's house one day, walk in, kick off his shoes, put on the Pope's slippers, put his feet up on the Pope's desk, and just start dictating terms. So basically, I'm inclined to agree with Noble that the two settlements of this era, the Constitutio Romana that we are discussing here, and the Ludovicanium, another treaty more about territorial boundaries than anything else, but in any case, these two settlements were continuations of ongoing negotiations and not about Louis pulling rank. Obviously, others disagree. An awful lot of the discussion around this issue focuses on the oath that the popes were supposed to swear. The conversation gets into a lot of linguistic and legalistic minutiae that I'm not competent to really present in detail, but a summary is important here. Many historians, particularly in the 19th century, saw this as a case where the popes had to swear fealty to the emperors, thus becoming their vassals, and thus very much a creature of the empire like Aquitaine or Burgundy, or any other kingdom within the empire. Noble and others argue that 1. This is anachronistic, since the idea of vassalhood wasn't fully developed at this point, and 2. 
the language used describing the oath was different from the kinds of oaths used to denote subordination at the time. The Pope was apparently swearing an oath of friendship rather than loyalty, a treaty between equals rather than between a ruler and the ruled. Of course, even this is more complicated than it seems, because in Roman culture and history, patronage relationships were usually described as ties of friendship, which is to say that Roman culture traditionally really was uncomfortable with things like monarchy and aristocracy and everything that went along with it. So everything was done in terms of wealth and friendship. So those senatorial patronage networks, they were all just as friends. It's fine, right? Which is to say that even if this was a situation where they were using the terms of friendship, this could be seen as a kind of patron-client relationship, which could include some amount of subordination. And this is where the debate gets into shades of meaning that I don't care or understand enough to delve into. Suffice it to say, for my purposes, there was an oath that had to be sworn as a result of negotiations essentially forced onto one party by another, and that regardless of whether you call it an oath of fealty or an oath of rainbows and kisses, it's clear that there was a power dynamic at play. That doesn't mean the popes were stooges of the emperors either. They were effectively independent, had recognized borders which were hashed out in the Ludovicanium, they controlled their own foreign policy, they had an army, etc., etc. They just were independent in a situation where the independence was granted to them by the Franks, if not on any legal basis, then on a practical one. Rome was independent because Charlemagne and his successors chose not to conquer it, and indeed enforced its existence on others. You could say something similar about several of Charlemagne's territories, but I'm not sure that makes the popes any less independent as much as it clarifies how much autonomy some of these territories had within the Carolingian Empire. From a legal standpoint, Charlemagne and Louis were very clear that they did not own the Papal States. The Papal States were entirely independent. But, also, you know, whenever there was an internal dispute, the Carolingian army rocked up and helped sort things out. And that was totally fine with the popes at this time in history. Getting back to the electoral ramifications of all this, we see that we now have a growing tradition of written-out documents describing some aspects of the electoral process, albeit now they are going back and forth contradicting one another. More importantly, we now have interference once again in papal elections from the aristocracy, and also from an outside power, though it should be recognized that both had precedent for doing so. The next election of Gregory IV went smoothly, but the papacy was back to having a long wait while messengers brought announcements and approvals to the imperial court and back. But after Gregory's death, the inevitable happened once again, and the clergy and the aristocracy chose different candidates. Louis' son Lothair came down and once again picked the aristocratic candidate, Sergius II, in return for that candidate confirming the need for the oath and approval from the emperor. If things had kept going this way, it's possible that papal independence would genuinely have started to be undermined. But, as we know, the Carolingian Empire was already falling apart by this point. After Sergius, it became less and less common for the popes to wait for approval for their consecration, or for the emperors of this period to successfully impose candidates. Indeed, pretty much every other part of the Constitutio fell by the wayside at this point, with the exception of the aristocratic participation in elections and the ban on looting the Lateran. While some emperors protested the rolling back of all their uh, privileges and everything, the papacy now had the political upper hand, as seen when Nicholas I forced Emperor Lothair II to remain in his hateful marriage and, incidentally, 
also banned foreign interference in papal elections. We will see how long that lasts, but, you know, nice try, Nicholas. As we know, the papacy's fortunes were above those of the wider empire for only a little while, something of a wily coyote walking off the cliff kind of situation. With the election of John VIII, we enter the era of the papal pornocracy, whose most verifiable characteristic was extreme levels of political instability and violence. In this period, twelve popes were killed, three deposed without being killed, two abducted, and one was dug up after dying, put on trial, and then dismembered. From an electoral perspective, the key thing here is that the aristocracy and the clergy had effectively begun to merge. Once it became clear that the popes controlled power in Rome, and that Rome was an independent political entity it was worth having power in, the aristocrats saw value in having some of their sons become clerics. It took a little while for them to move up the ranks, but by this point they had, and there were basically no further non-noble popes from around the time of Sergius II onwards. With the clergy thus co-opted, the inevitable entropy of victory set in, and the noble families and their clerical dependents began fighting amongst themselves. Add into the fact that the entire empire was in chaos and Arab pirates were attacking Italy's coast, and you sort of understand why this was not a great period to be alive in. This free-for-all in terms of papal elections and control of the Roman states eventually brought in contestants from the wider scrum for power and land in the post-Carolingian chaos. At first, as we've discussed previously, the local Theophylact dynasty dominated the papacy, despite ongoing feuds with our friends the Spoletan Dukes, and despite a number of the leaders of this faction being, you know, women. The major innovation of Marosia Theophylact being getting her son elected as pope, although arguably there have been some papal dynasties before this as well due to the lack of rules about this kind of thing, or any kind of enforcement of clerical celibacy, though that's going to be an issue we're going to have to come back to at some later date. The Theophylax lost power in 935, when Albrecht, king of Provence, took over the city. Albrecht, or Alberico as he was called locally, had a huge influence on the city. He was able to stabilize the ongoing feuds and got five popes in a row elected, the last of which was his son, John XII. Despite their seedy reputation, Alberico solidified a lot of the lay and clerical institutions we've discussed over the last two episodes. Five popes in a row is not a shabby amount of time to be running a city, and so he had time for a lot of his impositions to actually take root. Most importantly, and probably most interestingly, he didn't feel, for whatever reason, that he could rule directly. He militarily controlled the city, established himself as the duke of the city, but never tried to make himself pope or try to replace the Pope as the de jure head of the government. He didn't, you know, try and make himself king. Making his son Pope was as far as he got, meaning that the political systems we've discussed in the last couple of episodes took their principal form under and shortly after the rule of Alberico. None of this involved very much in the way of innovations to the Roman electoral system, beyond making it bleedingly obvious to everyone how prone to manipulation it was. But none of the people with pointy things in the area wanted that to change at this point, and it probably never would have, unless one Adelaide of Italy hadn't set a fateful note to a certain Germanic king north of the Alps. From a political standpoint, everything changed for the papacy when the Etonians attacked. But Otto is a story for next time, so I'm going to stop there for today and do another summary. Yay! Everything I've said in this episode cries out for summary, but hopefully you can see now why I chose to present it this way. In modern states, there's a distinction between internal political procedures and foreign policy. 
And if a country interferes with another country's elections, it's a huge challenge to their independence. The papacy in the Middle Ages didn't really work that way, which as a result is part of many of the ongoing debates about how independent the papacy really was, and whether it could be called a state, and all this stuff. The reality is that the papacy didn't start as the executive branch of a state. It started as the religious leader of a large Christian community in a city in central Italy. That the papacy wound up ruling that city while also leading a major world religion is one of the weirder quirks of history. But at this time that we're talking about, that was all evolving. Nothing was set in stone. So let's review. The process for choosing a pope was the same as that for choosing any other bishop at the start, which is to say that it was ill-defined but involved some kind of election based on local traditions. All that we know as specified is that it had to involve the clergy, the laity, and the consecration of the bishop, would involve neighboring bishops conducting the ceremony. Once Constantine took over the empire, and the papacy took on increasing levels of importance, the systems in place began to evolve even as the place of the city in the political world of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages also evolved. Once the empire began to break up, the papacy took on a local leadership role, as we've covered many times, and its importance within the wider church community made it geopolitically important. This meant that when the Eastern Roman Empire began their unfortunate rule of Italy, they had a strong interest in ensuring a friendly papacy. But doing so required power projection well at the edge of the empire's ergonomic lift zone. Nonetheless, the emperors continually tried to interfere with the, these local elections, imposing several electoral rules that would persist or be revived. Still, their grasp was tenuous, and for people in the empire, Rome became a bulwark of religious tradition, a place where members of a principled opposition to change could take refuge. For those from Italy, the empire was increasingly incapable of protecting them or enforcing their rule. As the military aristocracies of Italy developed, an alliance between the clergy and the nobles of Rome took shape. This unity allowed the popes to play their opponents off one another and gradually shift the Eastern Romans out of central Italy. Turning to the Franks to counterbalance the Lombards, the first rounds of really serious faction fighting started to take place in Rome, though, of course, we must admit that faction fighting goes way, way back to Constantine, when those 137 people got killed in a massacre. In any case, the popes formed a strong alliance with the Franks, in which the popes provided the Frankish king's political legitimacy in exchange for protection. Ultimately, the Franks crushed the Lombards, and the protection provided by the Franks became internal as well as external. Once the Franks were involved in Roman political affairs, they inevitably put in place certain electoral rules that helped them keep tabs on the situation, but which also established precedents whereby the independence of the papacy was somewhat compromised. Two written documents were put together that spelled out the shape of the Roman electoral system. The older one called for all but the clergy to be excluded, and this was undone by the later document. Unfortunately, the inclusion of the laity in the electoral process allowed the aristocrats to hijack the papacy. And this was fine when the aristocracy used the papacy to create stable institutions and actually govern the city. But during the pornocracy, the papacy became a pawn in the faction fights going on between aristocratic families. Ultimately, this era was brought to a close first by the reforms of Alberico and, more importantly, by a large wave of Germans cresting the hills to the north. Okay, that's it for today. Next time out, we will look at the papacy under the Etonians, so be sure to check back for that. In the meantime, thanks for listening and look forward to our next episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 